and welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbero. Organised crime is something many of us are gripped by in dramas and documentaries, but thankfully rarely give much thought to in our daily lives. However, organised crime units all over Britain are involved in high-risk, covert operations around the clock in an attempt to keep our streets and communities safe. Operation Ringtail is Yorkshire's largest ever drug seizure, and the recent operation came under Detective Chief Superintendent Carl Galvin, head of the Yorkshire and Humber Regional Organised Crime Unit. A few weeks ago, the team's dangerous and meticulous undercover work led to the conviction of the gang responsible for importing 15.9 tonnes of cocaine to the UK from the Netherlands, with an estimated street value of £1.59 billion. It was hidden in 318 pallets of frozen chicken. In November, six people were jailed at Sheffield Crown Court for a total of 58 years. Detective Chief Superintendent Galvin is today's guest. As we take a look at the life of a covert operative, the work of the organised crime unit and Carl's personal story. Carl, it's fantastic to have you joining us from police headquarters in Wakefield, I gather. Yes, good morning, Helen, and thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Oh, me too. One thing I thought about when I was preparing this is how one defines organised crime. And I guess you are the right man to ask that question too. Yeah, and it's a really interesting one, actually, because normally within policing, we work on statutory and legislative definitions around everything that we do. But organised crime is one of those areas that falls a little bit outside that. There's, of course, legislation that does govern what we do, but organised crime is more a combination of different offences and a mindset in terms of the criminals. So organised crime is defined as being individuals who are planning, coordinating and committing serious offences, whether that is individually, in groups or as part of transnational or national networks. So the main categories of crimes that we look at in terms of organised crime, and it might surprise you because there's a few that are a little bit left of centre that most people don't normally consider. So we look at things like illegal drugs, illegal firearms, fraud and money laundering, but also serious child sexual exploitation, bribery, corruption, Organised immigration crime and modern slavery and human trafficking are uh, really key areas that we're looking at at the moment. And then emerging over the last few years, and I think going to um, take up a lot of our time in the years to come, online and cyber type offending. Carl, that gives us a good idea, actually. And you're right, you mentioned some types of crime in there that I hadn't even thought about, and that includes cyber crime. What kind of crimes are we looking at there? Cybercrime is a all-encompassing crime type for lots of individual type offending, but mainly some of the most serious types of ransomware attacks that occur on big business or critical infrastructure, and also the denial of service type attacks, often coming from foreign state actors that are trying to create an issue with critical infrastructure in the UK, and often through people who are deploying ransomware in order to extort money out of big business. So those are the main types of cybercrime in the more severe category that we look at, but then also where other crimes are committed with a cyber element. So the commission of fraud through phishing attacks, emails, that type of thing. And then obviously using the 
internet as a means and a mechanism to enable other types of crime, specifically some of the more serious child sexual exploitation and child sexual offending that occurs over the internet. Certainly the initial contact and grooming phases can be very internet-based, so cyber will encompass all of that. Also, I was reading recently about computer nerds making homemade 3D printed guns for terrorists. That sounds the sort of thing that I'd be watching on a drama, but is that kind of thing happening too, Carl? Yeah, it is. And actually, I'm really proud of the team I lead up here in the Yorkshire and Humber because we've had the first organised crime conviction for a privately manufactured firearm. So Operation Rice that we delivered over 2021 and in 2022 was probably that headline you were reading, actually. It was an individual who was a computer science lecturer at Bradford University, but he'd become involved with some organised criminals as well. And he was making 3D printed automatic weapons where the bulk of the weapon was produced via a 3D printer. He then added some component parts that were required to make the firearm viable and active and then they would have been sold into criminality. We were fortunate enough to have investigated that and recovered viable automatic weapons from that team who were now all serving significant custodial sentences. Gosh, that's absolutely extraordinary. And when you were listing the sorts of crimes that fall under your banner, it struck me how those crimes will change over the years because you touched on then modern slavery and immigration too. Yeah, one of the key things around serious and organised crime is that trying to predict what the future operating environment might look like. It's a very proactive field of work and that's probably what attracts the people that work in this area to it. A lot of investigative work is reactive. A crime occurs, somebody has done it and an investigation team undertake an investigation to try and find out who. Serious and organised crime is a little bit more visionary than that and we are constantly trying to evolve and develop our capabilities to try and tackle what the next threats may be. And absolutely, have identified organised immigration crime and modern slavery as being two of the big ones. And it won't have escaped you or, or I'm sure your listeners, the small boats crisis that we've got at the moment. And of course, there's a number of different nuances to that. So there's absolutely the nuance of those that are involved in organising the small boats, exploiting people who are a real low point in their life, real vulnerable to exploitation, coming from often third world areas or war-torn areas. So there's that element that we absolutely need to put a stop to. But also, the undocumented movement of people into the UK creates a risk of criminals using that as a means to enter the UK. And we've got to have an awareness of that as well and make sure that we're trying to do everything we possibly can to understand who might be coming through our borders, who might then pose a crime threat going forward. How rife is organised crime in Britain? I don't even know whether that's something you can answer, but I suppose I'm trying to understand the scale of it, Carl, because a lot of it does take place under most people's radar, thankfully. You are right. It is very often hidden from people's consciousness, but actually it's hidden in plain sight a lot of the time. And probably most people have driven past that premises and wondered whether there might be a cannabis grow there, or maybe people have seen some activity ongoing and just asked the question of what happens there? It just doesn't seem right. and doesn't seem normal. Earlier in, in December 2023, the government released the most latest serious organised crime strategy. And the Treasury have estimated that serious organised crime costs the UK economy £47 billion annually. 
So in terms of a economic national security threat, it is our most significant national security threat in terms of that. £47 billion is the estimated cost to the taxpayer. You use the word visionary. I'm guessing from what you've described so far, all of this is why you feel so passionate about being involved in this work, because I would imagine no two days the same. It's fascinating stuff and you are making a substantial difference. It is a great area of work and I suppose you just evolve and develop into it through the course of your career. I've been working in the police now for around 27 years. I'm from a police family and I've been in the organised crime arena for 25 of those. And we work as part of a fantastic system. It's great to feel part of the serious organised crime family, as we like to call ourselves, really feels like that. And that system's not just the police. It involves the national agencies that are engaged in this type of work, mainly led by the National Crime Agency, but supported by His Majesty's Revenue and Customs, UK Border Force, Immigration Enforcement, Serious Fraud Office, so lots of national infrastructure. Then I form part of one of 10 regional organised crime units operating across England, Scotland, Wales and um, Northern Ireland. And then, of course, we've got the 43 police forces of England and Wales. And that's just the enforcement side of it. When you then look at how we are supported by education, local authority, child and adult social services, who will all have some element of organised crime strategy and organised crime response. It really does form quite a significant system of delivery that the public probably don't see on a daily basis. You mentioned there that the public don't see it on a daily basis, but I know at Yorkshire and Humber, which actually is my patch because I'm a Grimsby girl, as you probably know, Carl, but you're keen to make the public more aware of what's going on, balancing that without giving us sleepless nights. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a couple of things to balance. One, It's absolutely in the public interest to understand what threat and harm might exist within their communities. But the second part of that is the way in which we tackle organised crime is very intelligence-led. And our best source of intelligence is our communities and the public. And in order to try and create that ability and that confidence for the public to provide us with intelligence, and it might just be, I've just seen something that's not quite right and I just want to alert you to it, to perhaps, you know, significant details about a particular organised crime network. In order to get that trust and confidence within communities, it's important that we engage them and we have to engage people better through information. But then balancing that to ensure that, first of all, we maintain tactic integrity. That's absolutely important. We are the custodians of our tactics and they are what try and maintain that advantage over the criminals. And also, of course, not giving people sleepless nights by making people scared to engage and and go out within their community. And we're absolutely not in that position in the UK at all. In fact, we've got one of the most highly established, serious and organised crime response environments anywhere in the world. There are law enforcement partners all over the world come to us for advice, for training, to engage with us. The message to the public is carry on doing what you're doing, but there's an element of vigilance that's required to ensure that you don't become a victim, an element of vigilance required that might assist us with regards to intelligence, and also an element of responsibility from the public as well to not unwittingly engage in some small part of organised crime that might actually have a bigger impact somewhere else within that area. 
You said you need to stay ahead of the criminals. I would imagine the criminals are getting more and more sophisticated and the internet's helped that. We talked a few minutes ago about 3D printed weapons for terrorists. This is a big brain workout, isn't it, for you and your team, Carl, to make sure that you do stay ahead of the game, because I would imagine the organised criminals out there are getting more and more sophisticated and coming up with new ideas that you need to have thought about first almost. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I think this is where an understanding of the structures of how we deliver around organised crime is important. We have specialists in all of the areas that you would imagine. So this isn't just single officers who are expected to be omnicompetent around all these real complex areas. That's not the case at all. We have not just police officers, we have staff. So we bring in trained specialists in all sorts of areas of delivery who have committed their entire lives to being experts in certain fields. A really good example of that, I think, is in the economic crime arena, where we have specialist financial investigators, specialist forensic accountants, people who are operating within that sort of arena and can understand the flows of money and where there might be criminality taking place. We also then, within the officer cohort, have people who are highly trained and highly specialised in certain areas of the business. Just within the Yorkshire and Humber Regional Organised Crime Unit alone, we've got 32 separate capabilities that all deliver around a specific aspect of organised crime, be it one of the crime types that I mentioned earlier or one of the tactic deliveries. And each one of those are all trained to the highest levels. We maintain their training and accreditation as soon as something new comes along. And of course, that's just within the Roku environment. You can then extrapolate that across the national agencies and everyone else who we work towards. We do like to think of ourselves in organised crime as being almost like the special forces of policing in terms of how we deliver our work. So there are some really highly capable, highly trained operatives engaged in this on a 24-7, 365 basis. And some highly trained operatives in Operation Ringtail, which I referred to in the introduction. I appreciate that you'll only be able to chat about what is in the public domain, but people are now in prison, which I would imagine makes it a little bit easier to chat about. But can you just explain, for those who aren't aware of Operation Ringtail, um, what that was all about, Carl? Yeah, absolutely. Operation Ringtail was a job delivered by the operations division within the Yorkshire Number Regional Organised Crime Unit and it involved an investigation that spanned between the 10th of September 2021 to December 2022 when we actually enforced on that job. So the most recent convictions came after we'd done the case file preparation. The actual operational deployment on Ringtail was, was across that sort of 14-15 month period between September 21 and December 22 where we identified a significant cocaine and crystal meth importation and distribution network that was had a central base within the Auction Humber area, but actually was transnational. They were dealing directly with the cartels in Mexico in terms of identifying commodity, which would then be moved from Mexico into the UK. And then once in the UK, distribution occurred from the north of Scotland, all the way down to the south coast and, and, and everywhere in between. We estimate that we probably had somewhere in the region of about 15.9 tonnes of cocaine that had an estimated street value of about 1.59 billion. 
Now, in policing, when we estimate what the street value of a particular commodity would be, that is using our expertise to look at the totality of what we've seized and then undertake a calculation to say whether if that was broken down into individual deals that may well be dealt within the communities of which we all live, what would be the overall impact and the overall profit that the criminals would get. And that's that assessment of around 1.59 billion. Now, the vast majority of that commodity was seized in a domestic setting. And that was really important in Operation Ringtail because we wouldn't ordinarily see that types of amounts within a residential domestic setting. So what you normally have is a more industrialized supply chain ongoing. And when it gets to the domestic arena, it's a lot smaller, more localized people with smaller amounts dealing within their communities. But with this organized crime network, they were storing and distributing significant quantities of drugs from residential settings. And that's what made that a little bit unique. And like I say, the CPS who prosecuted this fantastically and with a lot of proactivity and a lot of innovation in terms of the prosecution that the lawyers delivered, they tell us that this was the biggest domestic prosecution for cocaine that they've ever delivered in UK policing history. When you mentioned there the amounts of drugs that were being stored in a a residential environment, I was reading some of the court case and you found millions of pounds worth in some people's bedrooms, didn't you, on this? Yeah, and to just set the scene with regards to that, we did, but bedrooms that had been purposefully fortified and purposefully set aside for the storage and preparation of drugs. So this wasn't a case of people going around their normal business with a couple of million pounds worth of drugs under the bed, so to speak. It was a very sophisticated network where a bedroom had been changed and altered to be a sort of fortified room for the storage and preparation of this commodity. But the fact it was in a domestic setting was what made this a little bit more unique to what we're we're used to seeing. We'd normally perhaps see this type of amount within more of an industrialised setting, maybe a unit put to one side, something of that nature. The fact that this was occurring in residential settings where there were normal members of the public, normal neighbours on either side and opposite going about their everyday business was what made this a little bit more unique. You mentioned there that the length of the operation was about 14 months, but just wondering where the tipping point is and how difficult it is to decide as to when to move in. Because presumably, finding millions of pounds worth of cocaine in the more domestic house setting, you might go in at that point. But this operation, I'm guessing you were aware that there was a much bigger operation to be had. So how do you assess, Carl, when the point is to blow it open, if you like, and make the arrests? Is that a difficult decision sometimes? It is. It's a brilliant question, is that, Helen? And and of course, you are an expert and someone who's very interested in risk, and it all comes down to risk management with regards to that. Serious organised crime operations are not unique to other types of policing operations. There's lots of demands on our time, lots of threats that we're expected to respond to. So there's always an element of how long can we stay on one particular investigation when other threats may well be prevailing that we need to respond to. So you're balancing the capacity of your teams and the requirements for them to be deployed elsewhere. But then you balance that with sustained public protection and trying to assess the totality based on the intelligence that you're receiving of what that network, of what harm they're causing, 
we absolutely will assess threat initially. From understanding that threat, then we'll be able to make a risk assessment of what's the risk. But once we've identified what the threat and the risk is, we can then consider what harm that will mean within a community. And that community might be a real localised setting or it might be the UK as a whole. But once we assess what that harm is, then we ask ourselves the question when we're moving towards enforcement and conclusion, will we sustain public protection and how long will we sustain it for? On some occasions, the situation is that people in a more street level dealing situation might be replaced within a week or within maybe a couple of days. And that's not ideal because that's not sustaining public protection. When you've got an operation that's this large, you want to try and dismantle and disrupt that organisation. So hopefully it never engages again, or if it is to start to redevelop and re-engage, you will be able to get on top of it before it gets to this extent. And that was the risk assessment that we were managing on Operation Ringtail. In modern serious organised crime investigations, we don't normally run one for so long, if I'm being honest. But on this one, such was the significance in terms of amounts and therefore harm. We wouldn't have been able to sustain public protection unless we got it to a threshold where we were going to dismantle it almost to the stage where it couldn't reform. And I'm pleased to say we're now sort of 14 months further down the line from our original enforcement. And we're still, of course, monitoring and mapping intelligence around this group. And they haven't reformed at this moment in time. So we sit here thinking that was a right decision on this occasion. But there's other occasions where we have to balance that and sometimes we might have to re-engage with the group if we've gone too soon. But that's just the constant sort of risk assessment and balance that you are regularly considering as a senior investigating officer or the head of an organised crime unit. And when millions of pounds is at stake, these operations are really dangerous and that you're also managing and balancing at the same time the safety of your covert officers. Yeah, absolutely. That's a daily balance in terms of each individual deployment. And so we're deploying in a range of different ways. So sometimes we are physically deploying into communities, into criminal settings where we are trying to deploy a range of different tactics, whatever they may be, to intelligence gather, to evidence gather, to take the investigation another stage further towards completion. And sometimes we deploy in a non-operational setting. Sometimes we're deploying from operation centres where we're looking to deploy perhaps tactics in a more distant way. And then, of course, we've got the case file preparation. So when we're considering our officer safety, we're considering risk in terms of our officers on the ground. We don't want them, first and foremost, to be harmed. We want to maximise their safety. The second part is we're considering the workforce risk in respect of them. Some of these operatives, Helen, are uh, unbelievably committed to what they do. It's not great for me as a supervisor to have to tell people to go home, but I've got operatives that will sleep in their cars, in the car park for a couple of hours between deployments on occasions, and are doing that because of their passion and their enjoyment or for the work that they do. But it's important that we maintain and consider their health of being because we want to maintain the longevity of our operatives. Not only are they highly trained and we want to make sure that they can be deployed on a regular basis, they've got home lives as well, families, friends and loved ones. And it's important that we help them manage that balance between work and delivery. So we're managing not only compromise and 
maximising safety from deployment, also trying to ensure health for being in terms of, of time on task. And then the other part of that then is the mental health, well-being of our operatives, because they're often seeing things and being exposed to things that aren't normal in society, but there becomes a degree of normality for these operatives. And it's important that as leaders, we don't allow that to become just accepted. We've come a long way over the last few years in being able to stop, pause, take some time out and make sure that people are in the right space mentally and right frame of mind to continue operating at this high pressure level. The great thing, though, Carl, is that you're Detective Chief Superintendent now. And at the beginning, you said that of your 27 years in the force, 25, I think, of that was covert. So you are a leader now and you're not involved personally in going undercover yourself anymore. But boy, you understand it. And it started really young for you, just I think three weeks after your 19th birthday when you joined the force. Before you knew it, you were involved in that undercover world, weren't you? Tell me how that came about. It's interesting because, of course, I joined the police three weeks after my 19th birthday in October 1996. And at that moment in time, you don't have any view, really, of where your career might take you. And most people, and certainly I fell into this camp, I joined the police to wear a uniform, to be proud to be a constable and to serve my community. I'm a proud Leeds lad and I was very fortunate enough to be stationed in Leeds Centre. And the only plan I had on joining was to get out, get into the communities of Leeds and try and reduce crime and and make those communities safe. But I suppose I, I fell on my feet a little bit in that I went into Leeds at a time when there was a lot of street robbery mobile phones and electronic devices had become far more commonplace than they previously had been. And there was a a fairly decent second-hand market for stolen electronic devices. And the nightclub drug scene was quite big. And policing was trying to adapt their tactics in respect of how they might respond to that. And here this young 19-year-old lad dropped into Leeds City Centre. I think I was the youngest person at Leeds at the time by about three or four years. And opportunities for me to get involved in deployments as a decoy officer to areas that were high robbery hotspots and also into nightclub and nighttime economy settings to try and identify drug dealers in those settings. Those were quickly roles that I were given. And then before I knew where I were, I I was loving that type of work and heavily engaged in that type of activity. And then the different roles and jobs just seemed to carry on from there, really. So I think there was a bit of skateboarding involved in the phone thefts. Yeah, I'm six foot two and about 95 kilos and have played rugby league for a, a lot of my life. And I was about that size when I joined the force as well. But we'd had a significant amount of personal robbery occur on one of the first skate parks that had been opened in the city at that time. The sergeant on the drugs team in Leeds thought, he's 19 and he's a young lad. He'll be able to skateboard. They went and bought me a skateboard from Leeds Market and deployed me up into the skate park. (laughs) And I can always remember one of the young detectives actually was teaching me about in terms of tradecraft and how I might want to look. And the tradecraft that they came up with at that point was to wear jeans, a T-shirt and a bandana. So at 19, (laughs) with a Leeds Market skateboard and a bandana, I deployed into the skate park to try and identify who was committing the robberies and and involved in some cannabis dealing at the time up there. 
it's probably not quite the image you had when you actually joined the force at, at 19 and thought you're going to be a bobby on the beat. I think ecstasy was a big drug at the time in nightclubs when you were doing this kind of work. And I guess the same kind of thinking, they probably looked at you as a young whippersnapper, quite a few, good few years younger than perhaps the rest of the team. And is that how they thought perhaps you would be the one to go into the nightclubs and look appropriate? Yeah, absolutely. I think there was two things, if, if I'm being honest. It was that. I was there at the right time in terms of my age and my appearance at that time. But also, I was new to the division as well. I wasn't well known. And people, of course, maintaining a covert identity in any setting in terms of covert law enforcement is really important. Tradecraft is what maintains our, our capabilities and maintains our advantage. And so it would have been no good being in a nightclub potentially buying commodities if a few days beforehand I'd been issuing a parking ticket to those individuals or <laughs> being on patrol and, and, and they'd see me in uniform on the streets. Yeah, the fact that I wasn't well known at that time probably assisted me with regards to that. But I'll tell you what was interesting at, at, during those deployments and I can remember it as, as if it was only yesterday really and it's so relevant today now and especially around some of the stuff on Ringtail really. One of the things that did surprise me was the nature of my job, of course. I've never been around drug taking in a social setting. It's not something I've been exposed to other than from an investigative setting. When I'd got evidence against people either dealing or using commodities in nightclubs, there'd be arrest teams waiting in the wings to pick the people up afterwards. And the amount of professionals that were arrested at that time, it did shock me that it would be always people who worked in what I considered was a professional setting and perhaps naively thought wouldn't engage in that type of offending. And of course, bring that forward 25, 26 years. And then here we have this significant cocaine seizure. And we look at what does the user community look like in respect of a lot of that commodity. And it's the same type of user community, Helen. It's that recreational, social user community. A lot of these people, professional people. And so some of the messaging around protect and preventing organized crime hasn't changed in, in 25, 27 years. It's that messaging of people who are active in society need to understand that they've got to play their part as members of society and perhaps not engage in types of criminality that might appear less on the scale of things. It's only a couple of tablets here. It's only a little bit of cocaine there. But actually, multiply all that together and you're fueling this significant organised crime network that brings with it all of the associated issues around organised crime, the vulnerability, the exploitation, the money laundering, the loss to the taxpayers, and then on occasions, the violence that comes with it where people are violently vying for territory, vying for supply locations. One particular individual, and I had to go and, and, and ID was the right person who'd bought the gear, and he was an assistant bank manager. And I always remember being quite shocked by that at 19 and, and a few weeks that somebody with that type of a profession would throw it all away for what on the strength of it or the face of it at the time was a fairly low level offence. Yeah, gosh, that's fascinating. I'm going to deviate slightly because I remembered I wanted to ask you, what happens to that 15.9 tonnes of cocaine? Does it get stored away somewhere? Is it destroyed? I'm just deviating back to Operation Ringtail there like you did. 
Yeah, with any evidence that we seize, we've got a responsibility to the courts to be able to evidence the totality of what we've seized to make sure that it can be forensically tested and subjected to the right test so we know exactly the purity of that commodity and then when we're doing those estimations of cost and value that we presented all that for the court but ultimately Helen once the initial requirement of that commodity is finalized it's incinerated we don't have to store it it doesn't pose a risk in terms of where that storage location may be, and we move on to the next operation. You had started off doing the undercover stuff that you mentioned when you were 19, and then you said that you worked as a hostage negotiator, you've worked in homicide. Just wondering what stories really stick out for you. And also, Carl, have you found yourself in really dangerous, life-threatening situations as part of your undercover work? Yeah, I suppose when you compare some of the engagements I've had as a covert operative with normal members of the public, yeah, probably have. That said, in its testament to the unbelievable officers and staff that work on the streets of the UK every single day, within a policing context, not unique, to be honest, and and I think of, of some of the situations that I've been in that are very similar to other colleagues. I've been in a situation where I've had firearms pointed at me and and been threatened with firearms, once with a a long-barreled weapon and on another occasion with a handgun. I'll never know whether they were viable. Fortunately, they didn't go bang at, at those times when I was threatened with them. I've had that situation. I've been assaulted multiple times whilst deployed covertly where there's been a threat and risk in terms of compromise Complications compromise myself. I've commanded incidents where there's been compromise of officers and they've been hurt as well. And that's really tough that they're some of the worst times in my career, really. And then there's some of the other additional risk. Certainly working internationally is something that has been really enjoyable and great experience but that comes with some significant risk. You ask what some of the standout moments. I was very fortunate to be the officer who was involved in the first ever extradition of a subject from the Philippines, from Manila, for criminal offences. It was a drug dealer on that particular occasion. But working in the Philippines for the period of time in order to make that happen, whereas at the time we had a full legend in terms of who we were and why we were there, we had protection arrangements put in place to managers. And after only a couple of days, another member of the government there put on an international press conference and without telling me, sat me in front of cameras to the whole of the, almost the whole of Southeast Asia. And all oh of a sudden, goodness. cover blown out there in the Philippines in the internet age. So cover blown and on the internet. And so effectively confined to barracks for the remainder of the stay, confined to the secure location where we were because the risk of being out there within that capital city was just too high. And then adding on to that, having to deploy the sort of morals and ethics we have within UK policing in a society that perhaps operates with a different type of culture and certainly out there where bribery is the norm in order to get things done. I remember we went to, have to go to the immigration office in, in Manila in order to get the travel documents for the person that we were bringing back and ensure they didn't have a passport, so we were having to get temporary travel documents for them to, to get them out of the country and into the UK. And they required a particular pen be used, a little bit like a Sharpie, 
and all I had was a biro at the time. <laughs> and they had must have had 20 pens behind the perpex screen that I was speaking to the immigration official. And asked if I could borrow a pen and just looked at me and asked again. And again, he just looked at me. And then the colleague I was with prodded me and just went in his pocket and got $10 out. And at that point, we got a pen. <laughs> Oh and, my goodness. Uh, there were some other instances that week. And so having to operate in that environment, but then log it all and justify it and an odd conversation when I got back and I had a load of receipts for some stuff and were able to submit them. And then for the, some other stuff, it was a report to say we'd spent so much money on getting pens and other bits and bats just to facilitate the safe removal and repatriation of this individual. Yeah, it's been a fantastic career with all sorts of things like that. And this individual, I gather, went to jail for running a multi-million pound drug smuggling ring. The fact that you only had a biro and you did get your Sharpie in the end did end up in a successful conviction, didn't it, of a, of a Harrogate man? Yeah, it did end up in a successful conviction. It's really interesting. When you're a covert operative and you're operating on these investigations, when you engage in with somebody at a distance and remote for so long, you almost start to second guess them, Helen. And, and I've had it many times where you get to the point where those suspects and subjects don't know that they're being surveilled or don't know that they're, they're the subject of an investigation. But as the investigator, you start to second guess people and you almost start to draw a picture in your mind of what their personality might be like and how they might be. Certainly this individual, I'd formed an opinion of, of how they were because we'd observed them for such a long period of time. And probably the picture I'd formed that they were quite a ruthless person, a bit of a bully, as a lot of people involved in drug trafficking can be. And when we got him to the airport for that extradition back, he was absolutely broken, crying, just wanted to be with us. And as a police officer who operates with empathy at the forefront of everything we do, you couldn't help but feel a little bit sad for the individual. And also, not only do we safeguard and protect vulnerable people who are victims, we safeguard and protect whoever needs safeguarding and protecting, really. And this person absolutely needed that. And he got on that flight and... It was the strangest thing ever. It was a 19-hour straight flight from Manila to Heathrow. And he must have thanked us about 30 times for bringing him back to the UK to put him in jail for many years. And it's, <laughs> I've never really been thanked for that before. But um, yeah, that, 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 was, that, that was a strange one. Your dad served 30 years in the police and a story that he was very much caught up in was in the news recently and on the one show on BBC One, a moving memorial for David Oluwali. Tell me about David and what happened to him in 1969. I never met David Oluwali, but David Oluwali is a significant person in my life now. My dad was a police officer for, for 30 years and unfortunately my father passed away in 2002, only a few months after retiring actually, a couple of weeks after his 50th birthday he passed away. During the last few months of his life, he was in a, a nursing home in Leeds, Wheatfields Hospice in Leeds is a palliative care cancer nursing home. They do some fantastic work. And I worked in Leeds as a detective at the time and I would spend... Often during night detective duty, I would spend time up at the hospice 
with my father with the radio rather than responding from the NIC I'd respond from up at the hospice when I needed to and it was during that time he told me the story of his involvement with David and what had happened to David knowing that it might perhaps be something that I'd need to know about in the future and David Olawale was a Nigerian man born in the 1930s in Lagos Nigeria and at some point in his late teens early 20s he stowed away on a cargo boat that was destined for the UK from Lagos originally when he was found in the UK getting off the cargo boat he was sent to prison for a short period of time for being a stowaway whatever that offence was at the time but ultimately Helen he found himself in Leeds at a pretty vibrant time for Leeds it was a good place to be a lot of activity in the city and ironically at the time as well Leeds United had signed one of the first black players to play at top flight football so that was an African man called Albert Johansson who went on to have a, a stellar career with Leeds United so it was a city and a community at the time that was open to being diverse and David was a resident of the city but then fell on hard times and ultimately in 1969 David met his death by entering the River Air in Leeds and being found a couple of days later, a few miles downstream. At the time, it wasn't known how David had met his death. The police didn't open up an investigation. Coroner, when he'd found, didn't think there was anything suspicious in respect of that. And the case was closed. And it was about 12 months later that my father Ironically, 19, same age as when I joined the police, in Leeds, very similar to to myself when I joined. But my father heard people talking about the death of David had been caused either in full or part by two police officers that were hounding him. And my dad, in hearing that, knew it wasn't acceptable and he whistled blue on those officers. That launched a Scotland Yard investigation. That's what a force would do in those days if they were their officers were subject of the accusation. They'd ask another force to come in and do the investigation for them. So Scotland Yard came and investigated it and ultimately found the two officers that my father had whistleblown on have been responsible for his death. It was never proven whether they actually physically, intentionally threw him in the water or whether they were involved with more of a third party. But there were witnesses that saw two police officers chasing David down an alleyway towards the river at the relevant time on the night that David entered the water. So, yeah, they were tried and convicted. It was the first time in British policing history that police officers had been investigated and convicted of the death of a black man. At the time, it was reported across all of the major UK news outlets, written press, and also further afield internationally as well at the time. And it was quite a big incident at the time and a big incident for Leeds, but then remained very silent for a lot of years, known to a few people who were aware of the story, quite a few academics that had done some social academic work around it, but remained pretty silent. I'm pretty silent at the point of my dad's death. My dad had some issues at work in the early years, but but had then gone through the vast majority of his career with this never being mentioned. My dad never really provided any commentary on it, never being asked about it. But in, I think, 2006, 2007 time, an author, Kester Aspen, wrote a book about what had happened to David. And then that brought the story more to the consciousness and, and, and more to people's awareness and imagination. And since that time, 
there's been a fantastic group of people in Leeds, I have to say, who have formed the David Olawale Memorial Association. They are a social activist group who have done a lot of work to ensure that David's name is remembered, to ensure that what happened to David is remembered, is spoken about, is that we stand up as a society and a community and face up to what happened in Leeds at that time. And whilst those two officers were ultimately responsible for his death, well, he was let down by other statutory agencies at the time as well, let down by mental health provision, let down by local authority. And the group have done a, a whole host of work to ensure that the wider story of social cohesion within Leeds is understood, remembered, and that we make sure that we move past what happened to ensure it never happens again. And yeah, there's been some fantastic things over the years, but it's resulted most recently in the Hibiscus Rising statue as a gateway sculpture. As you went to the south side of the city, a sculpture that was sculpted by Yinka Shonabare, who's a famous Nigerian sculpture of some repute and we've got this lasting memorial now to David's story. Personally for me it's something I see almost every day when I'm passing that area so it's a lovely memorial to what my father did and helped me remember him and new generations within Leeds can understand that story and make the connection of what they need to do as part of the community to make sure things like that never happen again. That's an extraordinary story. Your dad was a police officer. You started out as a police officer. You're married to a specialist police officer and your daughter's a Bobby on the beat. I was going to ask how, as a covert operative, family deals with you not being able to talk about a lot of things that perhaps you're involved in over the tea table. But you really have come from a police family and that's carrying on now in future generations, isn't it, Carl? I think in a lot of professions, you often get family connection around different professions. And it's no different for me. My wife's no longer a serving officer. She served for 21 years and she's been out of the force for nearly three years now. And what's been nice for me during all of that time is that my wife's always known where I worked and the type of work I was involved in, but not the specifics. So I've just always had that support from my wife in terms of that knowing nod or there was one occasion where I remember going to work one morning ringing her saying on a regular basis I might go away for three four days on different deployments something's come up we're going to need to deploy I'll I'll be back in two or three days I went home 21 days later on that particular occasion but yeah, it's always been there to to fully support me. And it's absolutely fantastic that my daughter, Sadie, has now joined West Yorkshire Police as a constable. But what the nicest part of that for me is that I would love to sit here and say that Sadie's joined the force because of the role model and the image that her dad portrayed over all these years. But it's actually not the case. Sadie doesn't see her career as being within the serious organised crime detective route. She's actually joined more because of how proud she was of her mum as a serving officer. And my wife worked in safeguarding quite a lot. And she joined as part of a positive action female recruitment campaign. And so just coming out of college, saw that, went on that was pretty inspired by some of the women that spoke on that and do all sorts of different things within the organisation. Came home and says, Dad, I've just done an online application today to join West Yorkshire Police. I've submitted it. I've said, let let me go through it with you. Let me help you. So it's too late. It's gone. And uh, (laughs) bless her, she's gone and gone through the process. And yeah, she's out there serving. And it was the first Christmas day this year where 
I finished on call at seven o'clock on the morning. So I was by sort of 10 past, 20 past seven. I was free of work. My wife's no longer serving. So we often have had our Christmases affected in one way or another. This year, we've been able to do the traditional sort of thing. But no, Sadie was working nights. She'd, uh, <laughs> she'd, she'd asked to work nights and actually wanted to do it and wanted to be part of doing all of that. So it was nice for us, actually, to uh, oh, have, have a quiet one ourselves and know that Sadie was out there doing her bit. I'm sure your influence has got to her somewhere through osmosis, if, not, if nothing else, Carl. Much as I could just spend the whole day listening to all kinds of stories, because it is rare to actually have somebody like you be interviewed, really, and, and listen to some stories behind the scenes. We are ending every podcast at the minute asking about risk. I'm sure there'll be lots of choices of answer for this question, but what's the biggest risk that you've ever taken in your life, Carl? And it can be personal work. It doesn't have to be connected to your job. What do yeah, you think no, it is? Helen, yeah, Helen, yeah. Risk assessment and risk management is really critical to almost everything we do. And I think the important thing around risk is understanding what does risk mean to me as a senior officer in organised crime. So the way in which I assess risk is uh, a calculation of threat times vulnerability to control or our ability to respond and that equals what risk we've got and so the biggest risks for me in policing is where that vulnerability to control or my ability to respond is in some way compromised and often that occurs with threat to life situations so threat to life situations specifically where perhaps the intelligence needs protecting in some way shape or form and so You've got a threat to somebody's life, but it's not just as easy as going and speaking to them or removing them from that situation. You've got to mitigate around that. And those are the biggest risks that we undertake. Personally, for me, within the organisation, every time you take a promotion, there's always the risk that you will be placed within a a non-specialist environment in order to, to carry on your career and it can be sometimes pretty difficult to get back within the specialisms but I've been very fortunate that hasn't been the case with me. I have gone through the promotions, I've accepted those risks fortunately, always then being redeployed into a specialist department to carry on my career but certainly biggest risk, those occasions where there's a compromise on our ability to respond. I'm sure that risk question is actually very relevant to you just in daily life. It has been absolutely fantastic chatting to you. We were introduced by our mutual friend, blind TV presenter and adventurer, Amal Latif, who is definitely one of our biggest podcast fans and continues to introduce me to brilliant people because he reported on the piece with you on The One Show. So uh, thank you very much indeed, Carl. It really has been smashing. Thank you. And thank you to you as well, Helen, for having me on and wanting to explore some of the issues around serious and organised crime, because not every presenter wants to do that either. And so I really appreciate you giving me a platform and hopefully it's been insightful for your listeners. So thank you. That certainly has. You have been listening to Detective Chief Superintendent Carl Galvin, head of the Yorkshire and Humber Regional Organised Crime Unit talking about his life as a covert operator and more broadly about the work within the unit. I hope you've found Carl's work and stories as fascinating as I have. Download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. I'll be back next week with another inspirational guest, so I shall see you then. Convex.